Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. Hi, everybody. Amber and I are both traveling this week, but rather than leave your feeds lonely and empty, we have put out the most recent episode of Old News. That is our monthly bonus episode for Patreon subscribers, wherein we round up the newest, oldest stuff, uh, stories coming out of anthropology and archaeology, and present them to you. So enjoy, and if you like this installment, you can become a Patreon subscriber and get access to all of the sweet, sweet monthly bonus content that we put out. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to Old News, our monthly roundup of the newest, oldest stuff from archaeology and anthropology. Um, I'm going to start us off this time. This is an article from Hyperallergic, and the title is World's Largest Native American Art Forgery Ring Distributed $12 Million of Fakes. This blew my mind. Like, it's It's so big. It's bad. It's just so big and so bad. Can you imagine, like, cracking that case, though? Being being the art crimes uh, detective. Yeah, I can because I I can imagine being like, well, they screwed the art scene for Indigenous Americans, and we'll have like yeah. a lasting impact on it. And just going home and being like, well, oh, yeah. Hope I turn oh. in my timesheet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into the story. History's largest Native American art fraud case will come through the courts this year after multiple family businesses manufactured, imported, and falsely distributed Native American-style jewelry as genuine between 2010 and 2015. The trade value reached nearly $12 million across 300 shipments in five years. Now, five men and two businesses are charged with violating the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, importation by false or fraudulent practice, and failure to mark goods with their country of origin as required by customs law. One supply chain involved Albuquerque importer Sterling Islands Incorporated, which purchases jewelry from its Philippines-based manufacturer, Fashion Accessories for Numeral four. Number four. Letter U. Letter U. Mm. Both entities were owned and operated by the Khalaf family. On August 27th, 1935, Congress created the Indian Arts and Crafts Board, IACB, to improve the economic status of Native Americans through the development and promotion of authentic Native American arts and crafts. The 1935 Act adopted criminal penalties for selling items misrepresented as Native American-made. In response to growing sales of counterfeit products, Congress passed the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, IACA, of 1990 to include the importation of knockoffs which undercut Native American economies and cultural heritage. This act is designed as a truth in advertising law meant to prevent products falsely marked as, quote, Indian made. During the court hearing, Native American artist Liz Wallace said, quote, I don't think calling this cultural appropriation is adequate. It's economic colonization, end quote. In one 2015 search warrant, federal agents detailed that jewelry was fabricated to have initials stamped on the reverse side of the object, a common maker mark denoting the artisan's name. For example, in 2014, Gallery 8 
and in Albuquerque made representations to an undercover federal agent that rings marked CK were made by Navajo artist Calvin Clay. What, like, it just sounds like knockoff underpants. Yeah. Uh, researching Navajo tribal affiliations revealed that no such person as Calvin Clay existed. Later that same year, Galleria Azul in Albuquerque falsely informed an undercover federal agent that a cloud symbol stamped on a Native American-style ring made in the Philippines was a signifier that it was a product of the Navajo tribe. Candace Hopkins, a curator and writer based in Albuquerque, notes the signatures are a primary identifier for jewelry experts in the Southwest, along with how the piece is made. According to Hopkins, both casual buyers and connoisseurs would look for a maker's mark. So that's especially, like shifty to take the one thing that people know to look for and go well we got that yeah but it's it's yeah like this is like this is huge and like the amount of money involved in it is huge but on a sort of a more pervasive level of economic colonization and like stealing work from artists like think about the stuff that you buy at, at that one buys at like urban outfitters or anthropology well it's the same company but like where you have patterns and and styles and things that are, you know, tribal or native, um, and every mm. like everything that I've read and all signs that I've seen point to, it's okay to wear jewelry made by Indigenous Americans and other people if you buy it from them, like. <laughs> Yeah, from them. Otherwise, it's just taking people's yeah. Ideas it's intellectual and stuff. property theft. There's a short documentary that was made about um, Otomi residents in Mexico City in the Roma neighborhood where uh, Roma takes place. Uh, Juarón's movie on Netflix. Okay, that won a bunch okay. of Oscars this year. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do at least yeah. know that one movie um, title. <laughs> but it's the little connection there of. I, I would love to have um, some like Otome tapestries. And so, but I know better. Like, <laughs> I know better than to like go look for one on Etsy. Well, yeah, like just to like actually right. try to find like a No, clean, you have like, to yeah. source And that so very that's what carefully. comes down to transparent supply chains, which is what studies like um, investigations like this try to nail down. Well, maybe we can link to that. Yeah, yeah. I'll include the link, the link to it. Um, and I got that through Remezcla. So, but, oh, but yeah, cool. next up, um, we have something. F- yeah, what's next? Oh, we have something from The Atlantic. How F sounds might break a fundamental rule of linguistics. <laughs> fundamental. Yeah. So, this is very exciting. Um, I, oh, my goodness. <laughs> thousands of years ago, small groups of humans across the globe began to transition from hunting and gathering their food to raising and planting it instead. They milked cattle, milled grains to make soft bread, and they used new inventions like pottery to preserve meat and vegetables. And once they did that, they could st- start spicing up their speech by throwing some F and V sounds into the mix. At least that's according to a new study published Thursday in the journal Science. The authors argue that... Sounds like F and V weren't part of human language until farming appeared during the (laughs) Neolithic age. Agriculture, they say, allowed humans to eat soft foods, which changed the way their jaws developed throughout life. (laughs) You're just showing (laughs) off your your agriculturally, this jaw brought to you by agriculture. Yeah, which shaped the kinds of sounds their mouths are capable of making. 
this shift would be an exception to a core rule of linguistics called the uniformitarian principle, which posits that humans' ability to use language has not significantly changed since language itself first appeared. Basically, oh, here's a quote. Here's a quote from Anthony Yates, who's a linguist at UCLA. Basically, the uniformitarian principle is necessary to do historical linguistics. So it's hard to say exactly when humans started speaking, uh, but most estimates place the date at least 50,000 years ago. Agriculture, meanwhile, sprung up at some point during the Neolithic, some 12,000 years ago. The idea that humans weren't using Fs and Vs for the first 38,000 years of our linguistic history is a real blow to uniformitarianism. Yeah, and so we'll be learning more about that um, in about a month or so when we interview Ann Gibbons, who um, wrote about this study for science, for the journal Science. Um, she's a really prolific science writer, and we're going to have her as a guest on the show, and we're very excited about that. Yes, um, and you heard it here first. Yes. See what being a dirtbag gets you? You're welcome, everyone. Got that. Speaking of things, speaking of things that being a dirtbag gets you, you may have noticed that I started putting videos on the Patreon feed. Do you like our faces? Now you can <laughs> see them every week. Yep. And you can also see what I eat sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably me too. I like to snack. <laughs> yeah. So that's something else that we're doing. So if you haven't noticed that yet, go to Patreon. If, yeah. if, if you're just listening to us in your feed, go, go on over to Patreon. Yeah, patreon.com slash the dirt podcast, in case you forgot. And yeah. Um, yeah, and tell some friends in case they want to see our faces too. We yeah. got faces for radio, but we put them on YouTube privately. Yeah. What's, anyway, what's up next? Speaking next, of faces for radio. Oh my goodness. Next is the cutest archaeology, maybe in all the world. It's sea otter archaeology. Now I know what you're thinking. That sounds made up. But this is actually really cool. So this is from uh, excerpted uh, from an article in The New Scientist. Archaeology is defined as the study of human history and prehistory by the analysis of physical remains. But the dictionaries may need rewriting. <laughs> Archaeology is now being used to study the cultural histories of tool-using animals, from sea otters and monkeys to birds and even fish. Natalie Womany at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Germany and her colleagues have analyzed a site at Bennett Slough Culverts in California where sea otters use rocks as tools for cracking open mussels. At this site, the otters don't just place smallish stones on their chest and then crack the shellfish on them. Um, and just a side note, this is a place for me to insert one of my very favorite facts, which is that sea otters have um, little pockets of skin under their little arms where they keep their favorite rocks sometimes. So if they have particularly good shell smashing rocks, they'll keep them and they'll just like hold them in their little armpit pockets. And they, that's, that's pretty they carry. Cute. Yeah, it's really cute. Okay. So these otters uh, at this site are uh, also smashing mussels against large rocks on the seashore, creating huge piles of broken shells, much like a, a human shell midden. Yeah, uh, a little, little otter midden. Otter midden. Womany's team has shown that this leaves distinctive wear patterns on the large rocks used as anvils and also breaks the shells in a characteristic way, meaning that the shell middens left by sea otters can be distinguished from those left by, say, people. 
This means it should be possible to identify ancient sites where sea otters used large stones in this way, which could reveal whether sea otters have been using stone tools ever since they first evolved about two million years ago. And then this would involve the same techniques that you would use for the study of ancient human sites. So that's neat. And that, that would be really interesting for understanding sort of population dynamics of different species that use tools. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Now something else that sounds made up. Yeah. <laughs> so here's archaeology on Mars. Marsgeology. Mm. Um, this is an article from Forbes. Um, archaeology on Mars from the fantastical to the real. Humans have been dreaming about Martian archaeology for well over a century now. When the Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli described seeing Canali on the the surface of the red planet in 1877, many in the English-speaking world began to speculate that Schiaparelli was referring to artificially constructed canals. Speculate is a delicate word for what happened. (laughs) Canals! Percival Lowell became the the largest champion of this interpretation. In his 1895 book, Mars. Lowell claimed that the canals of Mars had been built by a desperate alien race seeking to salvage what water they could from the planet's melting ice caps. He may have been projecting slightly. Yeah. As telescopes continued to improve, the ideas about Martian canals evaporated as quickly as the water they were meant to contain. But Mars' association with fantastical archaeology was only beginning. Um, In an 1898 science fiction novel, Edison's Conquest of Mars... Author Garrett P. Service told of a human expedition to the Red Planet that was sent as a counterstrike against the Martian invaders depicted in H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which was plagiarized by Service in his own book, Fighters from Mars. Ziggy (laughs) Ziggy Stardust and the Fighters from Mars. (laughs) No, I guess it it would be like Iggy Planet Gravel (laughs) and the Fighters from Mars. Um, with uh, the advent of space exploration, the Martian landscape has become populated by actual human-made objects. Fourteen separate missions from four different space agencies have littered the surface of Mars with not only landers and rovers, but heat shields, parachutes, and an untold number of broken bits. The things that people make and leave behind tell a different story than written history. Physical examination of landing sites on Mars would reveal critical details about why some landers arrived safely while others crashed to be crashed to never be heard from again even the crashed landers tell a story of human triumph and ingenuity okay calm down well um (laughs) triumph and ingenuity up until the point where they forgot to use centimeters one (laughs) oh that poor guy one day maybe an astronaut will walk up to the original viking one lander and marvel at the accomplishments of their ancestors the material heritage we are currently scattering across the martian surface will stand for centuries to come as a symbol of what we as human beings can do okay well it's so it ventures into sort of like bombastic language there but uh, yeah it is sort of like a well i got a deadline coming up hmm what am i gonna write about yeah um but it's but it's nice. It's a nice it's a nice thought, and it's, it's a also, cool idea. And it's um, well, just like the I think there's a good parallel between this and the the piece about otter archaeology, is archaeology. Ah, oh, good job. Is that it's sort of like that that penny exercise when you think about and like look at. So you know you have like the here's a here's an object. Tell me about the culture, and it's a oh. U.S. penny. And yeah. Okay. So, you like make up an entire copper based economy. Yeah. They venerate men with beards. Yeah. This is what their domestic architecture looks like. 
like they it's spoke very, Latin, like very breezy, lots of columns, but yeah, no, no, well, because it was a hot place. Oh, okay, right, okay, it's a hot place. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so it's a, that sort of thing of like the you know view from thirty thousand feet mm. or or whatever, and just like sort of why do we do this? So you like kind of take a step back and think about I don't know the point. It just reminds me of how periodically my dad will just kind of go, we're going to colonize other planets. Maybe not in my lifetime. And then I'll just like return to whatever he's doing. Yeah, I think about that occasionally and it like bums me out. What's next? What is next? Oh, this one's cool. Okay, so this is uh, a a story from the New York Times uh, entitled A History of the Iberian Peninsula as Told by Its Skeletons. Not, not like, gather round. Uncle Boney's gonna, <laughs> Uncle Boney's gonna tell you a story. No, um, along with historical records and archaeological digs, researchers now have a new lens on Iberia's past, DNA preserved in the region's ancient skeletons. Archaeologists and geneticists are extracting genetic material spanning not just Iberia's written history, but its prehistory too. I, the Iberian Peninsula is Spain and Portugal. It's what just, Spain's on. Yeah, yeah, Spain's on it. So here's a quote from Inigo Olalde, a geneticist at Harvard Medical School. We wanted to bridge the ancient populations and the modern populations. And so Dr. Olalde is the lead author of a paper published on Thursday, this past Thursday, in Science that analyzes the DNA of 271 ancient Iberians. And when I was typing this up, I kept reading that as ancient librarians. It's like, get it together, Goldfield. In recent years, scientists have created similar chronologies for entire continents based on hundreds of samples of ancient DNA. Now, researchers are starting to narrow their focus to smaller regions. With a total of 419 ancient human genomes obtained by various laboratories, Iberia offers a rich trove. This dense record shows that Iberia's genetic profile changed markedly in response to major events in history, such as the Roman conquest. Yeah, it would. But researchers have also uncovered evidence of migrations that were previously unknown. And that's, that's really cool. You can get at, like, ghost populations. Iberia, it now seems, was a crossroads long before recorded history, as far back as the last ice age. The oldest known human DNA in Iberia comes from a 19,000-year-old skeleton found in 2010 in a cave called El Miron in northern Spain. The skeleton belonged to a woman, a member of a band of ice age hunter-gatherers. People in Iberia continued to live as hunter-gatherers for thousands of years after that, long after the end of the Ice Age. Dr. Olalde and his uh, colleagues analyzed DNA from four additional hunter-gatherers, while a separate team, based at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History, hello again, extracted DNA from ten more. Both teams obtained the same striking result. Iberian hunter-gatherers had a remarkable mix of genes, showing that they descended from two profoundly distinct groups of early European hunter-gatherers. One of these groups can be traced as far back as 35,000 years, thanks to a skeleton discovered at a site in Belgium called Goyer. The Goyer-related people spread across Europe, only to be replaced on much of the continent near the end of the Ice Age by a genetically distinct population. The earliest sign of this second group appears 14,000 years ago, known to researchers by DNA in a skeleton at an Italian site called Avila Bruna. But in Iberia, the new Brown studies house. find... <laughs> Villa Bruna, yeah, brown, brown house. It's a nice brownstone. But in Iberia, the new studies find the Goye and Villa Bruna people coexisted. Hunter-gatherers across the peninsula had a mixture of ancestry from the two peoples. So that's really cool. 
That is cool. Populations interacting, seeing what happens. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. What is next? Up next, headline. Well, this is from the Times of Oman, which is um, like the biggest English language newspaper in Oman. Okay. And it's Times. Um, Italian archaeologist announces new discoveries at Salute Fort. Professor Alessandra Avanzini, head of the Italian mission of Pisa University in the Sultanate, announced new discoveries at the park of Salute Fort. Is Salute a word? Because she she sounds Italian. Is Salute an Italian fort in Oman or is it? It's 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 Salute in local Arabic. Okay, I just yeah, I was going to ask if it was also an Arabic word and did it mean the same thing? It's it's like Hassan al Salute, and so it's um it's a it's an old fort. Does it just mean the same thing? Not like Like, Salute. No, but does it mean the the gesture? No. Oh, okay. It's just a it's word. It's just that... salute. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. Um, yeah. No, just salute. Not salute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> salut for. So, Comment allez-vous? <laughs> salut. Ciao. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what Avanzini said in her press conference is that the stuff that they found at Salute makes it very seem very likely that it is the heart of the Magan civilization in historic Oman. So, there's... So way back in the olden times of like the Bronze to Iron Age, there's Dilmun and Magan and Malucha, and Dilmun is on Bahrain, Magan is in Oman, and Malucha is in the Makran coast in, in Iran. Um, she said that after the discovery of the massive rock wall dating back to the Iron Age, which was part of a large settlement, um, it, being the ancient city of Salute. So they found that in 2015, and then they were excavating, and the features of the city became more visible. Uh, she added that a number of buildings have been found. <laughs> it's, a, including- it's amazing how once you excavate buildings, they become more <laughs> visible. I know. Oof. I think this article has been like translated through a couple different a few languages. Times, yeah. 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 I No, um, I, can, I can see that, and I should have... Yeah. Uh, judged it accordingly. Uh, but she added that a number of buildings have been found, including ones with more than two rooms wow. uh, that se- <laughs> that were separated by narrow streets and rocky terraces were built around the entire plateau. She said that these are the most important discoveries made during the recent excavations. She highlighted the existence of several elements, such as the extensive planning of the settlement, the regularity of the buildings, the internal network of corridors and streets, the rainwater drainage system, the existence of the fortified areas, and the potential existence of specialized buildings. Um, Next line. This remarkable system of planning shows that Salute was a civilized center. So it was like urban planned. So it had planning. Which is just Um, always tickles me so much yeah well like, he'd how, been, how about grids y'all yeah yeah uh well he'd been sultan al-muzani director of the salute archaeological archaeological park said quote every day we discover new things that tell us about the history of salute what was discovered recently was very exciting as it was thought that the salute city dates back to the iron age which is what i thought until i read this article but the recent findings and the, and through the radioactive uh radiocarbon samples showed evidence of the ancient history of the salute city it dates back to the first half of the second millennium BC, the Middle Bronze Age. Al-Muzani <laughs> also pointed out that the new excavations show that the settlement in Salut did not end in the first century AD, as was thought, but extended into later eras. Um, and so they are working on making it like a full-on archaeological park. Yeah. So, which is cool. Okay. Next, next. up. 
This is from the Durango Herald, and it's a race against time to document Native American shelters. For years, archaeologists have been documenting hundreds of wooden shelters left by Native Americans in northern Colorado in a time-is-of-the-essence project as the land reclaims the historic structures. Now, archaeologists are turning their attention to the largely undocumented southwestern region of the state before it's too late. Archaeologists are recording these shelters widely known as wiki-ups for decades, but a concerted effort was started in 2003 when the Dominguez Archaeological Research Group, based in Grand Junction, started the wiki-up project. Um, just a note, the term wiki-up is the word used by archaeologists for these shelters. Various Native American groups have their own words for these structures. They're made by stacking wooden logs in a cone form, and they serve as basic temporary shelters. It's like a lean-to kind of thing, but there's lots of pictures of them, and they're, they look neat. They're like really, really ni nicely made, some of them. I don't know. I appreciate a good lean-to since I learned to make them at like nature camp when I was about nine. So wiki-ups were typically used more as bedrooms than houses. The average shelter was about four to five feet high and was used only for a short time, likely when Native groups were on the move, hunting, or visiting ceremonial sites. To date, the WikiUp project has documented 235 WikiUps at 99 sites. The project has focused mostly on the uh, Uncompahgre Plateau and northwest Colorado on lands the Ute tribe occupied before Western settlers took their land through various treaties. Lindsay Box, a spokeswoman for the Southern Ute tribe, wrote in an email that the tribe is partnering with the WikiUp project to identify WikiUp sites in an effort to preserve and protect them, but she declined to comment further. For Native Americans, documenting and protecting wikiups is important to honor the land and the people who came before, especially for future generations, said Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, head councilwoman of the Ute Mountain Tribe. I guess the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, because it's a specific denomination thereof. Um, and here's a quote from um, Ms. Lopez-Whiteskunk. As a young student in the public school system, when I did research on my tribe, it was difficult to find material because not a whole lot was published out there. These are the types of projects that need to that do need to record information for students of tomorrow. Documenting sites is a delicate act. Native people believe that out of respect for their ancestors, historic sites should not be disturbed and items should never be removed, which can conflict with the way archaeologists conduct fieldwork. Um, and the best way to resolve this conflict, says Lopez White Skunk, is for archaeologists to consult with tribes before conducting any work. Yeah. Um, and she says, quote, there needs to be collaboration with the Native people. We need to be the storytellers because we've already gone through many generations of someone else telling our stories and not necessarily getting it right, end quote. The oldest shelter the Wikiup Project has been able to confirm dates back to 1795. Some sites might be older, but current technology is not able to confirm that. Um, the only way to date the structures is to find wooden poles that have been cut with metal axes because from there you can... Um, date the year that the live tree was cut. And then before metal axes were available, tribes didn't typically cut live trees. So if you're building your shelter with already dead wood, you can't really, it's not an accurate date anymore. Yeah. But perhaps more interesting than the oldest shelter is the most recently built wiki of archaeologists have ever found, which dates to 1916, a time when Utes were taken off the land prohibited from entering Colorado and put onto reservations. And so the fact that these shelters are still there and still being built in 1916 is evidence that groups of Native Americans were living on their land under the radar of the U.S. government. So that's cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really 
Yeah, I mean, you can learn a lot from survey, and so just you don't have to. You, you don't have, have to, to like, take dismantle apart. and poke around yeah. and write it down. Yeah, just take look at it. Go. And plus, like, since, you know, th- there have been leaps and bounds in GPS technology and, and you know, being able to record things digitally in the field, you know, this yeah. this project is really important. But increasingly, we're, we're getting the tools to be able to do it well and do it quickly and accurately. Yeah. And um, I know some folks that have CODA at UC Berkeley, the Center for Digital Archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, they've developed like apps and and things cool. for use in the field. They like yeah. specifically stuff in um I think they've they've worked with several groups in Australia to do to to do work in spaces that you wouldn't traditionally be able to like haul all your stuff out to. Right. And, you just need so, like a, a tablet or a drone yeah. or a camera. Cool story. What's all next? Right. This is from Gizmodo. Gizmodo. Is it Gizmodo? No, no, no. I'm just being a oh, dumb dumb. Okay. Okay. Rare, quote, portable, end quote, Paleolithic art depicts a mysterious scene involving <laughs> birds and humans. Why don't it's you like just, a, how about you just like don't a, go to look up the photograph and just let your imagination fill in the I was just, I was just assuming it's Lita and the swan. Oh, no. No, no. Dating back but, more than 12,000 <laughs> years, this extraordinary example of rock art features a scene involving birds and humans. A rarity for the Paleolithic period on several accounts. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the, you never see birds. Yeah, because birds aren't real. No, not until not until the Neolithic. <laughs> no, no, no. Have you seen that? What, in SF? birds aren't real? Yeah, birds aren't real. It's a conspiracy. It's like a... Oh, no. I don't know. If it's a real conspiracy theory, they've got a great design team. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah, birdsaren'treal.com. Okay. Um, the official side of the birds aren't real movement. Wake yourself up from the lie. Resist the bird drones that steal your information and spy on you. <laughs> bird drones? Birds aren't real. Yeah, you can follow them on Twitter at, at birds aren't real. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to do that. Anyway, <laughs> tell me about these, these Paleolithic <laughs> birds. Gosh. Um, yeah, so these so-called birds... Um, oh come on! The, the intriguing the intriguing artifact has several features that make it exceptional when compared to other late Upper Paleolithic art pieces. In addition to being portable, a rarity unto itself. The fact that the rock carving is portable is weird. They say, yeah, yeah well, because it's not like attached to a wall. Because <laughs> you know, usually I mean, it's like in a place and you go and look at it. Not like it's a. Well, it's you a could stone just pop that, that could... out. Chink chink chink. All right. Ching, ching, ching. The 12,250-year-old rock carvings depict birds rather than typical goats, deers, bison, and so on. Got them deers. With different species of deer, I guess. Yeah, I know. Uh, what's more, the rock appears to convey an actual scene instead of just portraying <laughs> individual figures, and as such, is now considered one of the earliest examples of narrative art ever found in Europe. The first cartoonist. My ancestor. <laughs> yes. Details of this discovery were published this week in the science journal Lanthropology. <laughs> Lanthropology. The 300 centimeter wide, that's 11.8 inch, limestone art piece was discovered in 2011 at the Hort de la Bequera. Archaeological site in Spain. <laughs> 
Despite 14 years of continuous excavations, this relic was the only piece of its kind to be discovered at the site. The artist used a flint tool to etch the lines into the soft limestone, according to the new research. It's a very neat piece of work, lacking messy stroke marks found in similar pieces dating back to the same time period. So this, this, this person made this thing, and then it freaked everyone out so much that they all left. <laughs> and it's just like, also, this is written by a real art Someone, critic. Yeah. No, but it's just like, ah, uh, what a fine art piece. <laughs> Um, the etching shows five distinct motifs, including two likely human figures, one large bird, and at far right, what the researchers interpret to be a chick. It's the earliest episode of Sesame Street. Is it, so it's a baby bird? Baby burb. Okay. Oh, uh, not what, like a girl. Yeah. I'm just like, what is happening? Yeah, she's got a little um, bow. It's a chick. She's got a little bow in her hair. Um, <laughs> no, no, baby bird. One of the motifs is strange and undefined. Oh, no. Like my life. <sighs> The large bird is likely a crane due to biological similarities with the species and other artworks. What a like. That's a weird sentence. That's a that's like how aliens would. That's like that um, Nathan Nathan Pyle article. Like <laughs> this is. <laughs> mm, to date, only two prior depictions of birds have been found dating back to Paleolithic Europe. So this, this is the I mean, introduction gets, of birds. Yeah. Birds, Europe, um, Europe, birds. So this this last paragraph is really gonna. It's really the mwah on the. <laughs> the new discovery suggests birds had quote both an economic and symbolic role end quote in European Paleolithic societies. The authors wrote in the study an observation deserving of more research and attention. What's more, this new research suggests lower Paleolithic artists were more sophisticated than we realized. Uh, capable of creating veritable rock-based storyboards. Yeah, I left. I would have changed that wording, but it was just too good. And by that good, we, I mean we, not, we, not the good. author realized <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a um, that's cool. But birds aren't real. Okay, what's next? Taken under advisement. <laughs> uh, uh, well, next, next we take a turn for the bummer. Um, this is from the National Post. Ancient civilization sacrificed more than 100 of their children to stop bad weather, say archaeologists. But like I've se- I um I read um some headlines that were more fair and equanimous mm. uh, than this one. Mm. But but wherever I read that, I think I like have used my free articles for the month, so I this one. <laughs> well, let's let's expand. Archaeologists working in Peru have found what they say is the site of the largest child sacrifice in the world. About 140 children and more than 200 animals, probably llamas, were killed in the middle of the 1400s. A civilization known as the Chimu sacrificed the children in response to catastrophic weather, the scientists suggest. An unusually thick layer of mud, the sign of an extreme El Nino event, covered the burial pits. And that reminded me of what we talked about in our Dirt After Dark episode on the Moche, where we talked about briefly a um, a tomb that, that, was, that was excavated where the the people who were interred had had their throats slit, but then mm-hmm. also they were they were interred in thick mud. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what the date was on that, but I was kind of wondering if that was a similar El Nino event or maybe the same one. I don't know. I mean, sacrificing 140 children, it's a pretty extreme El Nino event. No, really. I 
I mean, we still don't know the details, but the children's bodies were buried on the skirt of a bluff that six centuries ago overlooked the Pacific. It now overlooks the ocean and a housing development. Thank you. Gabriel Prieto, an archaeologist at the National University of Trujillo, was working nearby when the owner of a pizza restaurant told him construction workers had uncovered, quote, an unusual concentration of human remains in a dune, as opposed to the usual concentrations. Talk about a pizza gate. Yeah, right? (laughs) The number of human skulls that emerged from the sand stunned Prieto. They were in an excellent state of preservation, he said. Prieto and his colleagues excavated the site between 2011 and 2016. Um, there were both boys and girls at the site, and uh, they they know this because they extracted DNA from teeth. And the study authors estimate that the children were between 5 and 14 years old. Radiocarbon dating placed the mass sacrifice around the year 1450. There are many world religions that include an element or refer to uh, child sacrifice, um, so, for example, in Christianity, the, the whole binding and preparation for sacrifice of Isaac by his father. But archaeological evidence for this is rare, and attributing sacrifice as the cause of death for human remains is often difficult. That's not true in this case. And so one of the, one of the authors says, quote, What we've got is no ambiguity at all. All of these kids have their chests cut open. Horizontal marks, similar to incisions made in some thoracic surgeries, cut across their chests. Um, This was probably in order to remove hearts. Um, And so uh, Hagen Klaus, a bioarchaeologist at George Mason University, who wasn't involved with this research, says, This site really represents something remarkable. It is disturbing and disquieting to see the sacrifice of children on any scale. We study sacrifice not for the gruesome detail, but as anthropologists and bioarchaeologists, our reasoning is to reconstruct a larger living world, which I thought was an important detail to to include, that there's all this sensationalism and attempting to be like, why would they do this? Why would, what would make them do this on such a scale? But, you know, really it just has to do with filling in the picture. But hmm. speaking of law... Oh yeah, this this Grace is actually Grace has an article. Yeah, so Grace remember Beach? Grace? Yeah, you guys from, remember Grace from a long time ago. I mean, not that long ago in the scope of things that we talk about, but yeah. So Grace Veach, rat researcher extraordinaire of the rats on the island of Flores, um, she's just published her first first author paper on her rat research, and it was um, covered by a Nat Geo article, and it's receiving some buzz. Yeah. On the interwebs. So first of all, yay, Grace. And also uh, we will link to that Nat Geo coverage and you can check it out for yourselves. But um, it's saying some cool things about uh, how Homo floresiensis hunted and how they lived in on Flores with these these little rat friends. And rat foes. Well, and rat dinners. So let's uh, let's head south from Flores Mm -hmm. to Australia. And this is from. Hey, how you going? site of, quote, blackened stones, end quote, could push back human occupation of Australia by 55,000 years, which at this point, it's getting absurd. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't they just say to the beginning of time? I read, yeah, I read this headline and I was just like, how much further back? It's like humans evolved on Australia, left, finished evolving in Africa, Africa. came back. (laughs) Huh, well... 
you know, that's not you, what this article says. No, but it's it's really cool because usually it's you know it's a jump. It pushes it back. You know, a thousand years, a couple yeah. thousand years, fifty five thousand years. So this is just <laughs> this is wild. And also, uh, remember when we ta- when we celebrated Kronika and mm. we had the uh, chronology in Australia is like, <laughs> yep. Three periods of white people being there, and then everything before. (laughs) Well, now it's even more before. (laughs) So, hit him. 45 years ago, Professor James Bowler of the University of Melbourne Melbourne. made a... made a discovery that was to change Australian archaeology. At Lake Mungo, New South Wales, he found the oldest human remains in Australia, proving humans had been in Australia for 40,000 years. Since then, tools 25,000 years older have been found. Bowler's new site... wait. (laughs) Wait, this guy's still excavating? I know. Speaking of, like... He's (laughs) the one who's finding all this old stuff. He's like, oh, I dropped this. (laughs) Well, no, and it's just 125,000 like, years ago. Yeah, no, it's the thing. Like, here's this 40,000 years ago. Hold my beer. Yeah. Bowler's new site on Australia's southern coast hints at a human presence 120,000 years ago. This is so contradictory to everything else we think we know about human migrations that Bowler acknowledges that there will be plenty of resistance. Yet Bowler and colleagues can offer no natural explanation for what they have found. (laughs) I love this. It's just kind of like, well, what do you want us to say? (laughs) Uh, For tens of thousands of years, the... Gunditjmara people camped at Moijil near the mouth of the Hopkins River. Okay. Uh, for the access to food and fresh water. It probably uh, wasn't always called the Hopkins River. <laughs> uh, beneath the, the oldest river. beneath the oldest Gunditjmara remnants, blackened stones that appear to have got their color and fracturing from repeated exposure to fire are eroding from the cliff face. Oh my god. Uh, wildfire is a natural part of the australian bush but bowler and colleagues argue that the pattern of blackening suggests a campfire rather than a bushfire yeah and usually you can tell the difference well hold on to your butt i'm gonna because i got my butt moreover the site also contains remains of edible shellfish the coastline hosts many similar shell middens so either we've got otters that are keeping (laughs) keeping warm by the bushfire Uh, the coastline hosts many similar shellmans this distribution of species at moijil just resembles those of human origin and differs greatly from those left by birds that which aren't real um if if birds were in australia their shellfish remnants would look different If the rock and shell containing strata were more recent, no one would question its status as marking a human campsite. But Bowler has dated it to 120,000 to 125,000 years ago. Archaeological dating is often controversial, but Bowler is firm. We've used several independent dating methods that all give the same result, he told IFL Science. I do appreciate his attitude towards this. It's just like, look, I know, I know, but... (laughs) It's like... (laughs) I, I no imagine, imagine how I feel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Bowler is under no illusions how strange it would be to find the human presence so much older than anything else on the continent. Um, in so this is him writing. 
Um, who were they? Why here and not elsewhere? Why no legacy of any toolkit, no traces of food, let alone human remains? Um, he wrote in one of the papers with Sherwood, Federation University's Stephen, Dr. Stephen Carey. I don't know why I stumbled on that name. Dr. <laughs> Stephen Carey and Dr. David Price of the University of Wollongong. 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 Yeah. I know people there. Wollongong. Uh, Bowler doesn't want to enter into discussions about which is less improbable that Homo sapiens left Africa so much earlier than we thought, or that another species of humans, such as Homo erectus, somehow reached Australia. <laughs> doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, please, no. <laughs> Two years ago, the possibility of early human species reaching America 130,000 years ago shook paleontologists, but the, but the evidence could be explained in other ways. <laughs> I'm a geologist, he told <laughs> IFL Science. I don't enter into such speculative areas. I have no idea who these people were. <laughs> <laughs> like, well said, sir. <laughs> but that's wild. That is incredible. So I look forward to more on that. Yeah, maybe. Hopefully. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, next, this is from Science. The Black Death may have transformed medieval societies in sub-Saharan Africa. In the 14th century, the Black Death swept across Europe, Asia, and North Africa, killing up to 50% of the population in some cities. But archaeologists and historians have assumed that the plague bacterium didn't make it across the Sahara Desert. Medieval sub-Saharan Africa's few written records make no mention of plague, and the region lacks mass graves resembling the plague pits of Europe. Nor did European explorers of the 15th and 16th centuries record any sign of the disease, even though outbreaks continued to affect Europe. Now, some researchers point to new evidence from archaeology, history, and genetics to argue that the Black Death likely, likely did sow devastation in medieval sub-Saharan Africa. Um, quote, it's entirely possible that the plague would have headed south, end quote, says Anne Stone, an anthropological geneticist who studies ancient pathogens, that's so cool, we should talk to her, at Arizona State University in Tempe. If proved, the presence of plague would put renewed attention on the medieval trade routes that linked sub-Saharan Africa to other continents. But Stone and others caution that the evidence so far is circumstantial. Researchers need ancient DNA from Africa to clinch their case. Uh, Gerard Chouin, an archaeologist and historian at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, and a team leader in the French National Research Agency's Globe Africa Research Program. Now, that's not how it's written. Say it how it's written. Globe Africa! Thank you. It's all caps. So anyway, they first started to wonder whether plague had a longer history in sub-Saharan Africa while excavating the site of Akrokroa in Ghana. Founded around 700 CE, Akrokroa was a farming community surrounded by an elliptical ditch and high earthen banks, one of dozens of similar earthwork settlements in southern Ghana at the time. But sometime in the late 1300s, Akrokroa and all the other earthwork settlements were abandoned. Um, and Shuana says, quote, there was a deep structural change in settlement patterns uh, just as the Black Death ravaged Eurasia and North Africa. So tantalizing. Interesting. Okay, bring us home with a, just right. a. This is very cool. Yeah, this is from the Guardian. DNA from 200-year-old pipe sheds light on life of enslaved African woman. Archaeologists use DNA taken from a broken clay pipe stem found in Maryland, in the United States, to build a picture yeah. of an enslaved yes. woman who died around 200 years ago and had origins in modern-day Sierra Leone. 
One researcher called the work, quote, a mind blower, end quote, which like, yeah. Um, The pipe stem was found at the Belvoir Plantation in Crownsville, Maryland, where enslaved people lived until 1864 and where a likely slave cemetery was recently found. Uh, DNA taken from the pipe linked back to a woman either directly from or descended from the Mende people who lived in West Africa and in an area now part of Sierra Leone. Uh, Julie Shiblitsky, Julie Shiblitsky, the chief archaeologist with the Maryland State Highway Administration, said, quote, as soon as people stepped on those slave ships in Africa, whether they were from Benin or whether they were from Sierra Leone, wherever they were from, that identity was lost. Their humanity is stripped from them. Who they are as a people has gone. The end quote. The new analysis was part of ongoing research about Belvoir that has given descendants of the people enslaved their new insight into the lives of their ancestors. The, the history of slavery is, is you know, obviously always going to be sort of deeply troubling. Well, it's not but, obvious to everyone. Okay, obvious to me and probably our <laughs> listeners. But anyway, it's, it's you know, it's going to be troubling, but it's important research. Well, and it's sort of um, like going back to the, the study, that, that article about the child sacrifice where, like, yeah, like studying this stuff is disturbing and disquieting, but it gives you... You create a living world. And so, yeah. like, the research Instead that... Instead of a static one. Yeah, the, the research that they're doing with the child sacrifice tell, will tell us more about not only, like, ritual and like, spiritual dimensions, but also biological dim- dimensions of the people who live there. And things like this um, can give living people... Uh, a, yeah, descendants of that community. Yeah, a sense of their what roots. their heritage is beyond just what they were handed down in terms of trauma like that there that there's heritage beyond beyond enslavement setting foot on yeah yeah setting foot on the, the shores of america as a slave yeah well that, that was as usual a real roller coaster of emotions and feelings thank you for traveling with us on that roller coaster ride thanks as always for your support and we'll be back with more of our monthly content and back next week with a new main episode Yep. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.